Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Georgie Corridge-Cole, Shailaxo's founder and CEO, and welcome to today's podcast. Today is the second in our neurodiversity series. We covered ADHD in our first podcast, And today we are focusing on autism in both adults and children. To understand more about this misunderstood condition and break down some of the common stigmas and give people some tips on living with autism, parenting children with autism, I am delighted to be joined by James Cusack, CEO of the charity Autistica, Regular listeners might remember the wonderful podcast I did with the founder of Autistica, Dame Stevie, as she had to name herself, (laughs) as a female entrepreneur in the 60s, uh, Dame Stevie, Dame Stephanie Shirley, who I remember saying to me, Georgie, you must use your platform and your reach to have this conversation. So Stevie, if you're listening, I mean, I'd be thrilled if you were. I'm doing it. I'm trying. I'm doing my best. Also, psychodynamic psychotherapist Jessica Narolansky and Charlotte Melia, co-founder of Dazzle and Fizz Club app, whose child was diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder with pathological demand avoidance, something I'm hearing about more and more, actually, also known as PDA. Um, Welcome to you all. Thank you. you. Great to be here. We've been trying to make this combination (laughs) work for quite a while. Uh, You are all very busy professionals so I'm really grateful for you being here today and talking about a cause that as a mother of a neurodiverse child is something very close to my heart not a path I thought I'd necessarily be on also as a publisher who as Stevie told me to do I'm doing what I was told is trying to use our reach to have this conversation after our first podcast I received such wonderful feedback from a huge amount of readers mothers Um, who were so grateful that we were having this conversation and using our voice and also from people in education in the medical profession but through to you know I had I had some messages from more than one headmistress saying god we need to do more we need to do better we hear you we hear you so that was a really great start and what I'm realizing is there's just so much to cover in this space and it's really almost a bit of an epidemic I think and, and we're only just starting to realize that it's not neurotypical and neurodiverse and them and us this is so widespread i think and it's obviously a spectrum isn't it but Mm. it's relevant to so many of us jessica can you tell our listeners today a little bit about you and what you do in this space so i am a psychodynamic psychotherapist and i work with children and young people up to the age of 25. the majority of my clients are neurodiverse and my earliest experience kind of leading into my work. I originally was a school teacher at the primary and secondary level, and then I trained as a specialist. I worked in cognitive assessment. And over time, my interest in SEN grew, and ultimately, um, I then was a Sanko and worked in senior leadership in schools, and I did open a school for young people with social communication needs. So over time, that led me to my really wanting to work on mental health side, 
and support young people with a range of needs, but my particular passion has always been working with young people with autism and ADHD. I do work in a psychodynamic model, which is different than often people with neurodiverse needs are steered towards behavioral therapies, but I'm not a behavioral therapist. I try to work with the whole kind of experience of the young person. What an incredible career. Oh, thank um, you. Wow, so grateful to have you here. Yeah, what does psychodynamic so psychodynamic, I think the easiest way to kind of explain it is it does kind of come out of a more psychoanalytic school of thinking. So you are thinking about the unconscious experience of the young person you're working with, but also how our early experience informs our templates about how relationships work and how that informs our experience of the world and our expectations about what relationships and social experience looks like. And then as you get to kind of working with a young person, beginning to understand how their early experiences have informed their expectations about what's going to happen to them. And how, particularly when you're talking about young people with autism, how their earliest experiences, particularly prior to diagnosis, often has given them a sense of not really belonging in the world, mm. being misunderstood, mm. being misrepresented. Again, I could go on in, in many directions, but... Yeah, gosh, yeah, there's so I'll, much you said pause, in there that I'll we, pause. That we need to discuss. <laughs> Thank you, James. Welcome. Tell us a bit about you. So um, I became interested in autism because I'm autistic myself. So I went to a specialist school from a very young age, from the age of three years old. But it took until I was about 12 to get a formal diagnosis. And that's because how we've conceptualised autism has really changed over over time. And um, I went to one of the UK's first ever autism-specific bases. And at that time, things didn't look great for me. But it also create a passion which was to really try and help find ways forward that ensure that autistic people do get the right support in future. I grew up with a lot of autistic people who have had real challenges in their lives that haven't been um, addressed. So I've worked uh, directly with autistic people in a range of different roles. I worked in autism policy, so I played a role in uh, the setting up of Scotland's first ever autism strategy. I did a PhD at the University of Aberdeen working in autism research and I went on to do a postdoc there and then I got approached round about um, in 2015 about being director of research at Autistica which is a charity which was founded by Steve, um, <laughs> Steve Shirley and, and Autistica has really evolved massively um, over time and we're really the, now the, the UK's leading autism research and campaigning charity and I'm really passionate in it and love working at Autistica. I'm now chief executive because I think as a charity we can really help to create research which make, can make a meaningful difference to autistic people's lives and to ensure that that research is then translated through the work that we do in policy and in communications to ultimately reach people and address the real serious inequalities that autistic people face in their day-to-day -day life and also to ensure that society can benefit from what autistic people have to offer as well because mm. I think that's really important. Wow I'm sort of in awe of you and that incredible career of yours that means so much just you sitting here. I feel already that the world is a brighter place so <laughs> oh, thank, thank you. you and what a what a great what a great great career. Charlotte no pressure. You've got some some quite serious people sitting next to you. I can't sofa. follow that. Not, um, not a chance. But welcome, and I've, I'm so thrilled to meet because I've heard about your doing. You set up your amazing. Anyway, I'll let you tell your amazing app um, aimed at children with 
Yes, thank you so much. But, and yeah. I do feel very lucky to be on this sofa. And I feel like I could just sit here and listen for the afternoon I'm, and I'm in for a treat. So thank you both. So yes, my name's Charlotte. I am the co-founder and CEO at Dazzle and Fizz, which is a creative event studio predominantly for young people. And during the pandemic, we were rather hard struck being an events business. So we started to diversify and we developed an app called the Dazzle and Fizz Club app which is an edutainment app aimed at neurodiverse and neurotypical children. It's a safe space where they can all play together. And this is really born out of a personal passion of mine because aged two years and 10 months, my son was diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder with pathological demand avoidance. So Oliver is my son. He went to a special needs preschool. He then went to a autism specific primary school and he's just started in um, an autism specific secondary. Thank you so much for being here and you have to say your children's parties from what I've seen are something else. You, you run these incredible Thank children's you. parties. They are like, if you're looking to spoil your child, this is where to go. You say this, <laughs> but I haven't actually arranged anything for my son and it's in two weeks. So Okay, well, um, well you've got plenty of strings you can pull. <laughs> Pathological demand avoidance. I've actually heard that come up a few times recently. James, you're nodding. You both are, Jessica too. What, what is that? I can speak from a parental perspective and experts, please do um, correct me if I'm wrong. But the way that Oliver's PDA displays itself is he can find demands on him very, very challenging that would seem simple perhaps if you're a neurotypical person. Mm-hmm. So being asked to put one's shoes on could to him feel like a mammoth task yeah and could result in a meltdown um he also displays incredibly differently to his classmates despite the fact that they're all autistic so oliver is very verbal he does still speak in his own unique way but he is a very verbal member of the class and he comes across as incredibly confident and funny and charismatic but actually he's masking a a ton of anxiety behind all of that can we start off with autism exactly what it is there are a lot of types of autism there's high functioning autism there's non-verbal autism can can you explain James Mm. do I start with you yeah okay yeah sure so our research suggests there's about a million autistic people in the UK right now so that means that we are estimating that around one in 67 people in the UK are autistic People might think that's quite a high number, and that's because, as I said earlier, how we conceptualise and think about autism has changed, and the criteria has become much more inclusive in terms of how we think about it, which means that we're diagnosing more people who need that diagnosis in order to get the right support, in order to go for diagnosing them and identifying them more effectively. There's still huge issues with diagnosis in this country, of course. so in terms of what autism is, you know, the way that we think about it, autistica is, is it's really about differences and difficulties with social communication and language. So autistic people, when you might make eye contact in a different way, um, they might not pay attention to things around social communication in the same way, they might not find it as, as, as interesting. Um, we also know that autistic people are likely to have more sort of rigid behaviours, like more adherence to routine, we might find uncertainty more difficult, that might mm-hmm. lead to anxiety um, as well. And you know, they might have very specific interests and those interests can be a very positive thing, but they also need to be managed in a healthy way in order to ensure that that person can still thrive as well. And then the final thing I'd say is that in, in autism and autistic people, many autistic people have sensory differences or sensory difficulties so they might be particularly sensitive to 
bright lights or to be sensitive to being touched or they might be right. sensitive to loud sounds. Part of it, just to kind of drill down a little bit further into that, is often there is a difference in the way one processes incoming language. It takes a little bit more time for it to kind of travel around the brain, partially because of the sensory processing issues. There are also often occupational functioning issues, which mm. means it's not unusual, for example, for a young person with autism or ADHD to have hypermobility. There's there's a whole range of... And occupational functioning issues. Yeah. For people listening, what exactly is that? These are kind of the practical skills of life. We tend to think about occupational functioning at school. Everyone thinks about whether you can hold a pencil or not. It is so much more than that. Mm. It is, can you coordinate the skills it takes to dress yourself? Can you coordinate the skills it takes to know what time it is? There are a lot of different facets of day-to-day -day living that impact our ability to feel kind of organized and in control. Yeah. And when you have to coordinate all of those different things, and when the information travels through your brain slightly differently, it's not a good thing or a bad thing, it's mm. just a different thing, but the world expects you to do it in a certain way. Yeah. So when you need that little bit more time, for example, because when you have difficulty for, mm. you know, as you were saying with rigidity, rigid behaviors, perhaps, as a way of trying to kind of feel a little bit more in control of information that's coming at you. But you've got a brain that's simultaneously running like a racehorse. You've got a million things to say. So, it's, so, so what does the brain of somebody with autism look like versus somebody neurotypical? I think one of the things I didn't actually cover in my first answer is that it looks different for every autistic person. So we are talking in very general terms and and the sets of differences and difficulties and needs that every autistic person will have will vary. And so when we look at like actually look at the brains of autistic people, it's very hard to actually identify huge differences between right. autistic people who don't have autism. And that's because actually there's a huge amount of diversity within the spectrum. So whereas in ADHD you're lacking in dopamine, mm. it's not that straightforward in autism? No, it's much more complex. You know, if you look at ADHD, there is a treatment and a treatment pathway, mm. the pharmaceutical interventions that you can give. And so mm. we've got a better understanding that autism is very complex. You're talking about how people communicate and understand the world around them. And that is as complicated as, as it gets in terms okay. of understanding the human body. So can we sort of bracket ADHD as focus and autism as communication, just in a sort of simple way? Does that vaguely... There's a saying of if you've met one autistic person, you've met one autistic person. And I think that <laughs> okay. is absolutely spot on. And we need to bear that in mind throughout mm. this conversation. And mm. Jessica mentioned um, about the hypermobility. My son was actually diagnosed with hypermobility before he was diagnosed yeah. with autism. But his friends aren't, haven't got hypermobility. So correct me mm. if I'm wrong, I'm not sure we can generalise it as a communication issue mm. because there's so much more to it than that. And yeah. Someone, again, as I said earlier with my son, he's seemingly very verbal and communicative, but actually he's got really he's severe communication issues. Yeah. Because there are different ways, there are so many different pieces of what it means to communicate. There's what you want mm. to say, but there's also what's said to you. And yeah. when you're needing to make sense of what is in the mind of the other person, if that takes you a little bit more time, mm -hmm. because you've got all this other kind of, I always think about it as all the other white noise mm. because of the sensory processing stuff. You maybe hear that flicker of that candle just that bit more. Mm. Be, which I think there, to some extent, there is some crossover and there are what they call comorbidities mm. Absolutely, um, yeah. between ADHD and autism, but they are very, very different. I chair a coalition called Embracing Complexity and it's a coalition <laughs> of 
different neurodevelopmental condition charities. And the reason for that is because we know that in autism, it overlaps with so many different things. Mm. So most autistic people will have a neurodevelopmental condition of some sort. Yeah. So that could be ADHD, it could be issues with anxiety, sensory issues, like you say, motor coordination issues, hypermobility is really quite prevalent in autism. So if you're autistic, you're very likely to also have other things and i guess the other thing to say is we know from research hundreds of genes contribute to autism so that means that the ways in which it can manifest itself is really different yeah. so you get a really rich variety of experiences which makes it's such an interesting area to work in and actually a real privilege to get to know all the different types of autistic people that do exist it is such a spectrum isn't it there are so many different conditions can we can we just touch on what the right terminology is it was asd then someone said recently it's now asc there's asperger's how does that differ yeah it's quite difficult to know and is it about a label i mean that's a big question isn't it but equally how how do we and then there's non-verbal is that a different label yeah what's your answer on that well i mean it's all it's all very culturally situated and about into people's preferences at the mm-hmm. end of the day but my old head of research, who's actually just joined NHS England, he did actually a piece of research on this. And if you speak to autistic people, they prefer the term autistic people, but not everyone does. Some people prefer people with autism. But if you speak to parents, they tend they are more likely to have a preference for people with autism. And I guess it's about how you conceptualise it. Some people see it as part of their identity and who they are, and other people. Are, are not not so concerned about that so in terms of that yeah, that's quite an important so. debate within the community and then i guess one thing that we had moved away from as a charity is focusing too much on functioning or f- focusing too much on asperger syndrome really partly because every person has a different life experience and some people can seem extremely able yeah. but actually face real yeah. challenges yeah. real challenges and other people could you know maybe not be able to speak or be non-speaking um, or require a bit of support but actually have a, a quite a good quality of life mm. as well and so Again, the challenges that people face yeah. is very complex and nuanced in that regard and rich. What we are talking about today in terms of you know how broad and commonplace it, it is becoming mm. as a sort of condition is probably more skewing away more verbal more high functioning that's what we're seeing you know more and more and more with more mm. and more adults being diagnosed than, mm. than ever before. Would you agree mm. with that? Yeah. What's great is we're seeing more women who are being diagnosed yeah. as autistic. You know, it's, it's a lot of mums are actually also coming through this process. Their child gets a diagnosis and they've discovered they're autistic. Unfortunately, really tragic stories of women who have been misdiagnosed with personality disorders, uh, mood disorders, so things like anxiety and depression, have ended up in mental health units, have mm. been really mistreated, potentially victims of different forms of abuse and then go on to get an autism diagnosis and what i really hope that we can change what we're hopefully beginning to see in the gp records is girls getting a diagnosis earlier which is really important so one of the things that i found in working in many different spheres across a whole range of different needs that girls tend to slip through the cracks because one of the primary referral criteria it tends to be referrals come through school and it tends to be for misbehavior. And that whole idea Slip, of you just through slipping net. through the net. Yeah. And we, it was interesting, before we before we came on, we were having a chat about uh, another area of my work that's developing is working with autistic young people with eating disorders. Yeah. And one of the things we were discussing, and it turns out to be very, very relevant um, in this conversation, is 
as you said, you know, most girls who I see, it's interesting, boys will come to me with a, with a diagnosis of autism. Often it's girls come to me with either an eating disorder, anxiety, depression. There will be the presenting mental health mm. need. Gosh. And it's only, I think, because I'm very fortunate, both between my own experience and I've worked with the most amazing clinicians over the years, just these incredible people who have been so generous with their information and experience that has given me a much more kind of integrated way. And as you get to know these girls, you start to think, wait you a minute. Yeah. yeah. If you're super tidy as a girl, you're just really neat and yeah. tidy. And if you're hiding on the desk because you don't want to play at break time, you're just shy. Yeah. And if you're a boy lining up his, you know, his cars or his trains well, or not, not wanting to play. 100%. Uh, uh, was that the same for you? Um, I think I, I mean, sort of fortunately or unfortunately, I think it was quite obvious quite early on. Um, the reason it took me a little while to get diagnosed is because in the 80s, they saw it as something that you'd associate with learning disability. And I didn't meet the criteria for that. And in the What 90s, does that mean? You missed key milestones? Well, it meant that like cognitively, so if you like, I did like an IQ test, I was in the normal range, but I showed all these other signs of being autistic. But in the 80s, they sort of thought you had to have both to meet the criteria. And so that has that changed in the 90s, which meant that I got a diagnosis when I was 12. And that was quite late. And that was an issue, but not as big an issue. And, and the story you told about eating disorders and autism is a really fascinating example because we know, and we've funded some really brilliant research in this area, that if you can ad adapt the support that you provide people who are autistic and, and who have an eating disorder, it's a really promising way forward and we're already beginning to see case studies which demonstrate that if you provide them that autism specific support their needs are actually quite different and it's really exciting because it's a great example of research which has been done really quickly which is already moving the dial so, so you're saying that if you identify somebody with an eating disorder as somebody with autism that you can get results quite quickly in overcoming i think part of it is you mm. you realize that the nature of the treatment right is, yeah. is, is the focus is different right i mean there are certain kind of crossover commonalities but if you have a young person who has a pre-existing social communication yeah. issue and that's not addressed because one of the things we were talking about is often, and I know it's going off slightly at a tangent, but for um, young people, let's say with anorexia or extreme bulimia, it, it, it affects the brain. So you get often eating disorder patients are quite rigid. So unless you really understand the mm. differences in the kind of the subtleties of the experience of the young person and really think about the history, mm -hmm. the history becomes so important. Does this make sense in the context of this young person's history? Yeah. And once you start to think this doesn't really quite make sense, yeah. you begin to question if there are pre-existing issues that maybe, as you said, when we were chatting earlier, the masking, the energy that goes into the masking, the anxiety and the depression that can produce that that is actually the thing that's triggered the the issue so if you deal with those difficulties the kind of interface with the world bit mm. then you have a different path to recovery if that makes sense yeah it does it does amazing can we talk about diagnosis how you got your diagnosis mm. how your son how you, how you knew i mean my son has several challenges i knew it can be hard for mothers listening i think Maybe we can offer some advice there. Let's start with you, James. Well, first of all, the facts are right now that there are 150,000 people waiting for a diagnosis because 
people have to wait ages to get diagnosed and are often having to go through a private means. And we know that from the age of first consent, when a parent first notices something, that they on average can wait four years, which is ridiculous. On a personal level, I'm really passionate about this area because obviously I was identified as being different at quite an early age. So like, if you look, there's this amazing report when I was free that was basically like, he doesn't pay attention when people come into the room, he's sort of obsessed with trains, he's watched Tom's Tank, he has all the classic sort of stereotype <laughs> versions of autism. I sort of showed all of those signs really. Um, but the thing that always I always sort of tell people about is, the, is when I was 12, I used to go to this hospital in Aberdeen which is where, where I grew up all the time. And I never really understood why I was going there. It felt like a waste of time to me. I didn't really, I had to speak to this person, didn't really know why. Um, and I remember my, I was sitting in my mum's Renault Clio when I was 12. And I was just like, this is so boring. I can't believe I have to do this. And my mum came rushing back into the car and she was in floods of tears, really upset. I didn't really know why. I didn't really understand why she was so upset. And... She sort of drove all the way home, didn't really say anything. I realised at that point, I'm looking back, and as a, as a parent, how incredibly difficult that must have been for her. Um, because effectively what had happened is she'd been told that I was autistic, and then there was basically no plan for what happens next. Off you go. And I, that's just a, it's just a, an incredibly traumatic experience. And one of the, we have this goal at Autistica that by 2030, every person gets tailored, effective, evidence-based support. And then we must be working towards that. And I think it is achievable and it doesn't have to cost the earth, but we really need the government to understand the importance of giving autistic people, like we give everyone else, the right start in life, because it's not fair on assisted people. It also has a huge effect on parents and caregivers. So sort of the, the effects of this for the society more broadly, parents having to go home from work, to pick up their kids from school. I feel so lucky and privileged. But I always say that a lesson from my experience to take away is not, is not like, look what's possible. It's in a sense, or like, look, this person can do it. It's more about the fact that look at all the people who aren't getting that, this opportunity, all the people that aren't getting Well, look what's possible if you do get the opportunity and you obviously yeah. had brilliant parents who pursued yeah. the diagnosis. And I'm, I was very lucky for a range of reasons. Very lucky because of her, because of the sort of set of needs that I had. Very lucky that I got the right sort of support in the end uh, that sort of helped me to get on the right track. Very lucky because of a range of sort of incidental things that have happened to me. There are loads of autistic people who aren't getting that opportunity, and that's resulting in inequalities that we're seeing today. And the real challenges that you know parents like yourself are facing. Talk us through your son, through Oliver, and how and when you got the diagnosis sure. and why you sought it. It was super early. Much like Jane said earlier, it was really obvious yeah. <laughs> to, to me that Oliver was, was slightly different. And it was around 14 months old that I noticed he was displaying very repetitive behaviours. He was doing a lot of rocking, which I now know was stimming, but at the time I didn't know that. He was watching the washing machine go round and round and round. He wasn't hitting any milestones. Mm. So I pushed to have a two year check and at the time we moved from Hampshire to Surrey borough and Surrey said no no no, we don't do a two-year check we check them after two and a half years I said no you have to come and see this child I'm really worried so they came out and assessed him and they said no 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 he fits in all the regular criteria he's absolutely fine um, but he's got hypermobility we'll send you a physiotherapist 
And I thought, okay, fine. So the physiotherapist came a few weeks later and I will be forever thankful for her because she was proper old school physio and she came in and she did all the bits and pieces with him. And at the end of the 30 minute session, she said, yep, the boy's hypermobile, but that's the least of your worries. He's got some serious needs that need addressing. And it was the first person who I felt believed me. I said, thank you so much. Okay, mm. great. So she went away and wrote a report and then we were seen by an assessment unit. But I was fortunate in that we had started to talk to people in the community and they had told me, and this is probably, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but it's true. They told me, oh, just so you're aware, they'll try and cancel your appointment a couple of weeks before because they try and push you back and push you back. They want to diagnose as late as possible. And I thought, oh, that can't be right. Two weeks prior to my appointment, they said, oh, it's cancelled to the new year. So I, as a parent, had to be incredibly pushy, incredibly forceful. So I had to have the appointment or it was going to be to the detriment of the whole family. I had to say I couldn't cope, like, which is ridiculous. It's a shame you have to but, pull that, isn't but it? But you did. Yeah. Um, and then, miracle, next day he went to the, to the centre and he was diagnosed that day. It took about half a day. And that was at two years and 10 months. He then went to a special needs preschool and then went to a special school. But he was completely nonverbal until he was four to five years old. And right up until the past couple of years, he was incredibly violent, which is the PDA. Because of his frustration with communication, he was prone to very violent outbursts, which was incredibly difficult. Now he's managed that beautifully. How have you managed that? And it's him. I'm going to be all down to him because since he started the secondary school, I think seeing the bigger kids, he wants to be a big boy now. And he's just finding ways to manage his own anxiety and manage his own behaviours. And he started to be able to a little bit allude to when he's feeling stressed. He'll say, I'm angry, mummy which is amazing because it's really hard for people with autism to be able to express their emotions. So for me, it's hats off to Oliver. He's oh. he's done he's done it all himself. Um, and, and are there other um, therapies, techniques that, that he's had? And, and I'd ask the same question to you, James, and also Jessica, advice you'd give it. In the previous podcast that we did on ADHD, we talked with a mother and also with a medical professional around a sort of toolkit for success mm. And we talked about mental support, we talked about diet, we talk, talked about medicine, we talked about supplements, education, you know, and this this whole thing that, you know, I have a son who takes medication. This isn't going to solve everything. Mm-hmm. This is this is one part of a toolkit that he needs to be his best self. And, mm-hmm. and that also involves speech and language therapy and da, 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 and a lot of love and, and routine and, you know, various other things. Are there things that, that Oliver's had in place that have helped him get to where he is Oh, for now? sure. I mean, he's had an amazing team. He's got speech-language therapy at school. He has a Senko. He has occupational therapy. We hired a private speech-language therapist when he was small. We just decided that was important, so we, we managed. My biggest advice to anyone going through this from a parental perspective is to reframe your expectations, which can be very difficult as a parent. And I think particularly as a first-time parent, you think, I remember saying to my mother, oh, I've read this thing. My kid's going to be able to read by the time they're 18 months old and they're going to be such a... It's not helpful, is it? (laughs) But you think all these things and then you, you have to throw that all out of the window. Reframe your expectations and don't expect your child to be on your busy schedule. I've learned patience, which I had none of prior to having my son um, because he will do what he wants to do in his own time and I'm there as a parent to help facilitate that and to help him be able to consume the world in a way that is manageable for him 
Whereas me as a, I'm a CEO, I'm one of those irritating, like can't stop working people. So get my, shit done. Oh, let's go. <laughs> I'm an All irritating that, I've got Let's do it. I, I now know, no, if, if I need to leave the house at midday, I'll start prepping for leaving the house at 11 with Ollie. And it no pressure. Like, hey buddy, um, we, we might think about putting our shoes on in 10 minutes. No, always the answer. Okay, cool. And we just take all the pressure off because for his pathological demand avoidance, he can't feel pressured into situations. So I've learned that. And now everything goes at a much slower pace. (laughs) It's probably good. good. It's probably brilliant for you. James, can you talk to us about the toolkit that you had growing up? You seem to have it all nailed. How how have you (laughs) you got to being CEO of Autistica? How have you had the career that you've had, which by all accounts is pretty remarkable have you done all that well first of all it's laughing at your uh, story about how you know you have to sort of reset your expectations in terms of getting out the door my oldest daughter who's nine has to reset her expectations <laughs> <laughs> in terms of getting out the door with me uh, she i think by the age of five was quicker at getting dressed and ready in the morning than me uh, she's just one of these people who's just on it in the morning <laughs> yeah. she's like a football training in the morning i have help with coaching we're going to be late again i think the thing for me and i think this is universal is when you get this news you know, I went through a year really finding it all quite traumatic. And I think that's... Is it, and is this age sort of 12? Yeah, age sort of 12. My parents did as well. And I think one of the key things that we really talk about as a charity, and I think it probably applies to myself, is when I went to this um, autism-specific school, when you're empowered to understand yourself and understand what the condition means for you, that's a really big deal. It's a big deal for anyone, actually. And this is why the conversation in the context of neurodiversity is really important. We need to be teaching all kids about who they are and about the fact they don't they don't have to be the same as everyone else and that they all have strengths and they all have needs and everyone is different and thinks about it and understands the world in a different way and basically that empathy is really important and i think it's really important in the context of autism as well you know understanding that um autistic people are different and see the world in a different way and that people who aren't autistic see the world in a different way and they see the world in a different way from each other and so helping kids to understand that and educating kids, I think is a really important thing to do. It's a really valuable thing to do. Yeah. So having that understanding of yourself, I think a really key thing that we're really learning for the research that we're doing, where I think, which I think my parents really got and understood when I got the diagnosis, is helping parents to adapt how they do things, not blaming the parent, because that's not what this is about. And um, what this is about is saying, you know, the things that you would naturally do as a parent are going to apply if your child is autistic. You have to adapt your expectations. So if you're continually getting a child to try and engage with you and interact with you, as you would naturally do with a child who isn't autistic, that actually might put the child off a little bit. And sort of adapting what you're doing and thinking about what their individual needs are, I think is really important. I think a final thing that really springs to mind, which I think is really important when you speak to autistic people and families and did apply to me as well, is around anxiety. So we know that anxiety is extremely prevalent in autistic adults, but also in autistic children as well. If you look at autistic children, by mid-childhood, most autistic children will meet criteria for some sort of condition related to anxiety. And one of the things that I think we can really work towards changing is actually being a bit more proactive around that. Because you know, if you look to other areas of medicine or other areas of healthcare, we wouldn't sort of look at someone when they get diagnosed with something, know that it's very likely they're going to have something else and then just do nothing about it. That mm. actually we need to be much more proactive around preventing anxiety and autism. And also well. why this sort of whole to- toolkit 
yeah. strategy is required, right? All these different things because you need to be working. To prevent, mm-hmm. no, but yeah. just to prevent it. And, and I think, yeah, it's being so proactive, isn't it? Because, so of course, that, the anxiety is a reaction. Mm. Mm. You know, it's not the issue. You know, I'm thinking, come, if you don't mind me just kind of saying about the, the PDA, because I know that's it's something that people are talking about more, is that the PDA isn't the pre-existing thing. Mm. The autism is the pre-existing thing. The PDA becomes the a way of managing the reactions. Because yeah. mm. a lot of the work I do, it's interesting mm. what you were both saying, because I'm often working with young people where there hasn't been a diagnosis. There's been, they've bumped along until often they reach a point of school refusal. And the parents don't know why. And, you know, there, there are all kinds of other things that happen. So usually I do a lot of work with parents mm. because there needs to be a lot of, well, first, if you have to first figure out that this might be going on, trying to think about why would a young person be suffering with these levels of anxiety or depression. And so the psychoeducation part mm. is so important. So what I want to bring to that, though, which I think is the through kind of theme, is it's all about understanding self-regulation. And what it means to regulate and be able to understand how you can bring yourself into that state of readiness. And when you have all these other things you have to consider, tying your shoelaces is harder. Mm. You know, putting your shirt on is harder and it feels funny, you know, and and thinking about walking. I mean, we there's so many directions we could go in with this conversation. But the other aspect of it is the difficulty in being able to contextualize social experience. Given this conversation Mm. that I knew we'd be having, you know, I didn't I've never done a podcast before. So I was able to think, okay, well, I've never done a podcast before, but I've spoken, you know, a lot of public speaking, I run trainings, I I could... A rational approach to something new. And I could then use from my pre-existing context an understanding that it's unlikely something would happen that would be so unpredictable that I wouldn't be able to manage it. it, But if you struggle with being able to contextualize experience, every time you step outside of the house is... A whole series of unknowns. So something like PDA, you start to think, well, that's not so unreasonable when you start to think, I have no idea what to expect when I step outside the house. And one of the things I always say to parents is I try to reinterpret the no as stop. And that, that stuff you're talking about, about the unknown and the uncertainty, there's really good research now that shows that. I mean, that's what's really exciting about Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. This area of anxiety is we're really beginning to understand a lot about 
the different ways in which autistic people can become anxious and that point you made around uncertainty we know that's a key driver of anxiety and autism and there are ways now that we can begin to support people and make sure that they get that right support and can manage that i, I remember interviewing um stevie and she said an example was you know when you go to an interview and you're a typical person can take a curveball what would you do if you had a superpower or i mean that's a, a basic way but actually somebody who's neurodiverse, he's, he's not typical, is going to feel totally anxious and unprepared and terrified. And that, that can feel like the hardest question in the world. Mm -hmm. And actually just by providing someone being able to go, like I'm going for this job, I am autistic, and it really helps me to prepare in advance to have this question and yeah. questions in advance. And actually little things like that yeah. can make such a huge difference to somebody mm -hmm. who's going to feel overwhelmed by That's that kind something. of curveball. And the world's got a lot to gain by making adaptations for autistic people you know we've got a situation right now where the ons produced figures the office for national statistics mm -hmm. produced figures which showed that only 21.7 percent of autistic people earn employment that's compared to 50 percent of disabled people and 80 percent of the general population my first thought is not just about autistic people my first thought is also about the fact that what about society? Look at all these people that society is missing out on because we're not adapting to the needs of autistic people. You know, if you do, there are very simple evidence-based things that you can do, which will mean you get better candidates in your workplace. You know, you can change your recruitment practices, send the interview questions out ahead of mm. time, make reasonable adjustments in the workplace, make your environment slightly more accessible. If you do all of these things, you're going to have a better, more diverse workforce. So one of the things that we're doing, and we're really working very closely with the government on this, is creating something called a Neurodiversity Employers Index. It's going to be a set of evidence-based measures that we're going to use that what every workplace can use to assess how they are accommodating different forms of neurodiversity and the idea is is that they'll understand where they are and they can make changes to things like their recruitment practices their work culture amazing. their environment That's which amazing. can really allow us to create that cycle of improvement i mean i'll then to that this is all progress mm -hmm. and hopefully there's really low-hanging fruit yeah. like that mm. that can make it easier and and how brilliant that there are so many diagnoses happening how you know it, it is we're really on the tip of an iceberg i think and it's and not it's, too difficult that's no. the key thing that people need to understand yeah. i mean this is one of the things we really struggle with speaking frankly with government and ministers here slightly to be honest with you running down the clock at the moment is you know what they need to understand is that there are things we can do now to mm. fix the delays in diagnosis which are cost-effective and sustainable, ways we can support autistic people which are cost-effective and sustainable, ways we can get autistic people in work, address their mental health needs, address their physical health needs, make the world a more accepting, accessible place for autistic people. We can do all of these things and it will create huge benefits mm. for society. It is, it's hugely about education yeah. though, isn't it? I don't mean yeah. education of autistic people, I mean of yeah. society. Can we go back to the toolkit that we sort of touched on? Yeah. and other support that you've had or other practices or you know therapies is that the right word but but other things yeah. you've put in place in your own life james that have got to you to this point and then yeah. in turn jessica mm. what advice you would give to people who want to yeah, yeah work out what that that toolkit looks like 
Well, I mean, I think one way I always think about this is life is like a developmental condition, right? So whether you're autistic or not, you think you've got it nailed and then someone comes along <laughs> and then you're like, oh gosh, I don't have it nailed. It's as nailed as I thought I did. I never think I've got it nailed because there's always something coming along to make my life difficult or maybe something or a challenge that I face. And so I think there's like an element of acceptance that with being autistic comes the reality that I'm going to have to be quite self-aware work on myself quite a bit think about what my strategies are for getting through things don't accept myself and don't stigmatize the difficulties and, and feel bad about difficulties i have but also don't pretend they don't exist <laughs> as well like you know have strategies and think about how you can do them and a lot of it for me is about structure accepting you're going to get things wrong you know i lost my wallet that on saturday is classic thing that i do and people are like oh you must get really stressed about losing your wallet like, if I was to get stressed every single time I lost my life, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I just, I'd just spend my life like permanently anxious. <laughs> like, you know, and you kind of have to accept that you're gonna, you're gonna do these things. They're not sort of start the self talk around how you're a terrible person and so on. I think for me that really, really helps. I think being honest and upfront with people about who you are, being quite open about it, is a good. Have you had the confidence to be so honest and upfront about it? I think a lot of it comes with privilege, to be honest. If you like, if you work at an autism research charity, you're in a very privileged position. So, like, you know, it's very difficult if you if you don't have that context and you don't have that knowledge. I mean, I've been working in this area for twenty years, yeah. and that helps. I think, though, so I made a very conscious decision. I became in as director of science at Autistica. What I didn't deny the fact I was autistic, but I didn't go around talking about it. When I became chief executive, I made a very conscious decision to talk about it a lot more openly. And that's because I felt like it was appropriate to do so mm-hmm. in the context of the work that we did. But also because I knew I was in a privileged position. I work at an autism research charity. I can yeah. be open about this. Yeah. I know there are lots of autistic people in different jobs who feel scared about telling them, talking about the fact they're autistic and they're scared they're going to be stigmatised and judged. I think that's changing in a more very positive Absolutely, way. Yeah. We need to keep pushing and, yeah. and think about how we change attitudes to autism and neurodiversity. And not autism is something that exists like kind of over there in the corner or ADHD exists in a different corner, but make it as a broader conversation about neurodiversity and opening. One of the things that we do at Autistica, for example, is we talk about neurodiversity, about being everyone in the office. So like, what are your strengths? What are your needs? And we don't do that for people that are autistic and have ADHD. But, but, yeah, we do I it mean, for everyone, you know? This is the thing that to me is just so clear and I'm like where is everybody else like yes. you know we're all bespoke you know I remember my son having genetic testing and they, they didn't find anything and I remember the genetics doctor saying we could go on and on for years and never find it. it's like pulling two random books yeah. out of different places in the library and and that that's what we're looking for so we could test you and we could find loads of things but you know they haven't presented to, to an extent that they are impacting your daily life so I could test you and find loads of genetic abnormalities I could test your son who might have some that are actually going to impact his life yeah. and and it could take me years to find them so but that's amazing it's we should celebrate that it's brilliant I know yeah, I mean I, mean, I, I like, and, yeah. I, and I'm like where is everybody else we've got this mm-hmm. education system that's this sort of generic bespoke catch-all that Mm-hmm. that someone's come up with this word called academic and, and worked out that if you're good at science and yeah. history yeah. and regurgitating information then we're going to stick an A next to your name and you're going to carry that through life mm-hmm. and you're like I listened to something the other day where someone said that they kept being told to think outside the box and they're like, get rid of the box yeah. where's the box come from yeah. uh, and you know we're all different I mean unfortunately you know we have to have these systems in place yes. don't we mm-hmm. but anyway the point I'm trying to make 
is you know, we are all bespoke, we're all individuals. And so that idea of looking at everyone in your company or your school or your family mm. or whatever and going, what does this child individual need? Where are their strengths? Where are their weaknesses? Where are their anxieties? Where are their challenges? To me, it just seems like what the modern world and success and happiness should look yeah. like. One of the things I... Easy to have done, but... Yeah. But, but, but I think that's really true. The other side of my work is I do sometimes have young people I see where it's, you know, it's just like therapy that's leading. But other times it's really about helping parents find their way. You know, mm. because they aren't always able to either figure out what kind of support they need or things have gone so wrong with school, for example, it becomes everything becomes very focused on school when actually it's not just about school, it's about life. And so coming to your question about intervention and support, what I always try to help parents think about is you have a number of different things that you're trying to achieve at once. Yes, we need to think about education, of course, but actually what can we do right now that's going to help you and your child feel like you're on a pathway mm. that's actually giving you something active you can do because you know they're living it in real time and they're mm. watching their child struggle and the distress is awful and something proactive that's not damaging to your mental mm. health as well exactly yeah. so often when they're waiting for assessment let's say if they're going you know because there is the the whole other area that we both raised before about if people are able to go the private route there's a yeah. whole other kind of discussion in, in that mm. but often I will help parents particularly if the child is younger and they're waiting for assessment you think okay well diagnosis yes that is going to be super helpful ultimately because I always say regardless of what you're looking at do you need to know which roadmap you're trying to follow in life yeah. because once you've got the map you then can figure out the journey get there. so yeah. the diagnosis is helpful for that but if you're waiting for that diagnosis let's say getting the speech and language assessment or getting the occupational therapy assessment or something that will produce actual active intervention steps yeah. that can help you help your child right now. Yeah. And also help the parents understand what the issues are mm. that you were talking about that are that are making it difficult to just get up and get out of bed in the morning. Can I add to that? I think I'm such an advocate for early diagnosis. I think it is vital. Yeah. But the way to position it is as a tool it's not a sentence. Mm. So for example, when my son was diagnosed, I was told he's unlikely to speak, he's medically severe, severely autistic. They said that his cognitive ability was really low. Like they kind of, it was it was quite damning um, in the assessment, but that's just because I was looking at him and I knew that he wasn't interested in doing what, what the lady wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, you're just giving him really boring stuff and he's like <laughs> putting in little men in a ship. I was like, you can't put men in the ship. He doesn't want to put men in the ship. Yeah. And 12 years later, that is not the child who was diagnosed on that day 10 years ago. So I'd say for parents who are going through diagnosis or have just received a diagnosis, as you said, you, your parents found it quite emotional and so yeah. did you. It's it is not a sentence. Yeah. It's yeah. it's it's a tool. Yeah. Use it to your um, yes, for you then to be able to go out and work out what you need. And yeah, stuff. use it yeah. use it to access all the great the great things and services out there, the great companies out there. But don't let it get you down. It's not a bad thing. It should yeah. be there. Well, that that's why someone like you talking, who's on the path, who's on the journey, who's making progress, yeah, who's seen such great progress for the child, it's so comforting, and and that's why it's so good to hear yeah. your stories. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about, Charlotte, how you felt as a mother and advice you'd have to others? I mean, I remember when my son was at his first school in mother country, saying, yeah, your son's, he's, he's sort of spectrumy, isn't he? Mm. <laughs> I was like, wow. Cheers. Do I cry? <laughs> Do I just pretend I didn't hear you? Did yeah. I? You know, it is a journey. It's really tough as a mother. You, mm. you have all these expectations for your children and you don't know what they're going to be like or who they're going to be but it's hard for them it's mm. hard for the individual but it's also hard for the parent 
for parents listening, yeah, can you talk to us a little bit about your own experience and how you've come to terms with it and how you support him and yourself? I think it was a real mix of emotions when we received the diagnosis. But to be honest, the overwhelming feeling for me was one of relief because I knew deep down that that Oliver was autistic. I could tell he was autistic. Um, so the, the number one feeling was relief. I'm not going to sit here and say it's all been sunshines and rainbows. It really hasn't, particularly when his violence was at a peak. We couldn't go five minutes in a public place without him being violent towards another child. So because of that, we became very isolated because mm. I knew that every time we went out, he was going to pull somebody's hair or punch them. And ah. So that in turn comes with mental struggles as a parent. Mm. And there have been milestone moments throughout Oliver's life where I think I have felt bereft. So for example, I put a post on LinkedIn um, in September when he started secondary school. And I said, if someone had told me when I was pregnant that my child would be starting secondary school, still not being able to use a knife and fork, I wouldn't have believed you. But yet here we are. However, that is rather an innocuous thing. Who cares if he can use a knife and fork? He's so much more than that. And I feel the same way now as I did then in that this is not a bad thing. I don't see Oliver's autism as a bad thing at all. I think it's a great thing. It's him. He's the best thing that's ever happened to me. And without his autism, he wouldn't be him. Without Oliver's autism, A, he wouldn't be himself, but also he wouldn't have been such a gift to me. He's made me so much of a better person because of his purity. I think as an autistic person, he's so flipping pure. He doesn't lie. He is so honest and that is beautiful. He isn't malevolent. He doesn't try and like, kids can be quite cheeky and try and go behind your back. He can't do that. He'd be like, mom, I just stole the sweets. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, buddy, you did. For me, Oliver's diagnosis is part of who he is. And I've always been incredibly open with both Oliver and with our family and with our friends about Oliver's autism. So it's become more apparent now he started secondary school, the parents who have told their kids that they're autistic and the parents who haven't. And I just found it surprising because for me, I've always said very openly in front of Oliver, Oliver, you have autism. And even when he couldn't understand it, I just didn't want it to ever be this taboo or seen as like mm -hmm. a bad thing or like a shame because it's not a shame. It's like saying, Oliver, you have brown hair. It's part of him. It's who he is. And because we've yeah, normalised it. Yeah, society's problem, not and his. And it's, yeah. I've always been incredibly open with him about it because now it is just part of his identity. Yeah. Um, and he goes to an autism school. And I have never felt more excited than meeting James today. Um, oh. That having that knowledge and, and sense of self-identity. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, how many of us had an identity and, and were really confident in our identity as teenagers, as neurotypical mm -hmm. people? I sure no, as no, hell I'm with in. you, I'm with you. So to, for, as a neurodivergent person to be able to say, yeah, I own my identity, I own my superpowers, mm. that genuinely could change the world and change the world of work. I thought it was 15%. I'm really pleased to hear it's gone yeah. up, even yeah. though that's still a rubbish statistic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. At least yeah. there's been some improvement. It was a 21.7% of autistic people are in employment. So that's that's a really big step. Sometimes people go, oh, well, that's really bad that the figure, and the figure is bad, but the important thing is we're now collecting the data. Yeah. And we can, by collecting the data, you now know how to improve things, you know, yeah. and we can sort of address the gap. Can we talk about what help is available to parents, to individuals, with a child with autism, with autism themselves. Mm -hmm. um, in our last podcast, we talked a little bit about schools and a little bit about getting a diagnosis and going to a GP. First off, you know, there are private schools, there are state funded schools, and then there's, you know, there's a lot of support available through the NHS, but obviously it takes time. Mm -hmm. 
um, it's limited. You have to you have to get your elbows out, don't you? And you have to be diagnosed. I have to be diagnosed. That's the thing. Without so, that diagnosis, you get no help. Can we yeah. talk practically about what parents or individuals should do if they suspect their child or they themselves are autistic? I work with parents in the state sector and the private sector. Very, very different experiences. Mm-hmm. There is a misconception that if you are in an independent school, that there is going to be more help on offer. And it is not the case. It's generally the opposite. Yes. Mm-hmm. Is that an independent school is under no legal obligation at all to meet the needs of your child, or a state school must. If you go into an independent school with an existing diagnosis, and the school says, yes, we can meet that. I used to do a lot of work with education, health and care plans. No, no, this is really, this is really, because it's very hard to get in the UCP as well. So oh, boy. I think this is very useful. So if you have a pre-existing diagnosis in the independent school takes your child, they will say that they can offer certain things, but depending on the level of need, mm-hmm. they can at some point say, this is beyond what we can offer. Now, granted, in a state school, they can also say we're unable to meet need if they don't feel they're the right environment. But generally speaking, in state schools, the statutory obligations are there. Right. Um, And I think that's really confusing for parents because often they've gone the independent route, at least a lot of the the families I see, on the assumption that the Senkos are going to have a body of knowledge that they may or may not have. A lot of that is really led by the senior leadership's kind of view on whether they want to prioritize this work or not. Some schools do, some schools don't. And, again, and with increasing pressure to yeah. to meet, you know. And I and I don't want to make a time. judgment on schools' decision making. That's for them to make. But for parents, it's very confusing. Yeah, yeah. I think that's yeah. really useful advice. And I I know through other parents, um, that's absolutely the case. It's um, very frustrating. So if you do have a young child, a child who you suspect might be autistic mm. where do you start is it gp yeah i mean gp or you might be referred on and within the school within the school setting as well unfortunately the reality is, is the system is not functioning particularly well yeah. at the moment you know in schools and in healthcare and um, i wish i didn't have to say this but uh-huh. i think i do feel that parents have to fight quite hard to ensure their child gets their needs met and that's really sad i know that some parents go down the private route that can be quite expensive and their strengths and weaknesses towards taking that I presume you can have a private diagnosis and then take that to the NHS? Not necessarily. necessarily. No. No. So like, so same with local authorities, they don't necessarily accept it, but it can be helpful if you want to build an understanding of your child as well, but it's a really frustrating state of affairs. So I think parents need to be unfortunately quite strong advocates for their own But you're spot on, James. And that was the advice I got from the special needs Mm. preschool when we were going for the primary place. They said, be a pain. Be a pain in the bum. Because it is he who shouts the loudest. And isn't that tragic? Because then I was looking around at some of the other great kids who who deserved the space just as much as we did. Mm. But the parents perhaps weren't equipped to be that loud voice. Mm. And it's... No, we don't live in Utopia. It would be lovely if we did. But, you know... Yeah. And I think I'm also ca- catching them kind of further downstream often. Mm. So, so much has already happened um, by the time often kids come to me because usually parents seek me out because things have broken down. Mm. So they've been through the system and it hasn't worked and their child isn't coming out of their bedroom. And, you know, that's kind of where I'm coming in. So it's about trying to then think about, you know, how to how do you then kind of triage the situation again getting some meaningful support in the moment but if you're going to then also try to fight the mm. the pathway of trying to get an education health and care plan and one that's worth the paper it's written on in a way i mean i appreciate that there's a very complex road ahead but it's it can be one worth fighting for are there particular books groups 
podcasts, white papers, probably endless in your world, James. Yes. But are there places that there was a great book that I was recommended? I remember it was the first thing I read and my stepmother gave it to me and it had a chapter on dyslexia, dyspraxia, ADHD, ADD, autism. And I remember reading it had all these different case studies. I'll find the name and we'll put it in the show notes. But to me, it was so useful. It had like really digestible bullet points and then a case study from a parent and a case study from a child or an 18 year old. It was really productive. Um, other things that you've read that have been really useful sources of information, things you've listened to, talks, strategies yeah. you've put in place for yourself. So the first book I read the day after the diagnosis was The Reason I Jump. Yeah. which was written by a 13-year-old boy with autism. And he was a non-verbal autistic person, and it was great to hear his perspective. And t- to be honest, I try and enjoy as much diverse content around autism as possible. Everything from watching Atypical on Netflix, which, mm-hmm. by the way, was brilliant, <laughs> through to there was a great two-part series by Chris Packham last mm-hmm. week on BBC Two, and it showed really? the autistic mind via art. And I thought it was absolutely stunning how they made films to describe different autistic people's experiences. And from the PDA perspective, there's Panda, it's called. There's mm-hmm. Panda Notes and Book, which I found really, really helpful when he was diagnosed additionally with the PDA. There are so many podcasts now, aren't there? Mm. Yeah. I've listened to loads. Um, a friend sent me, let's grab this, sorry. It oh. said, it was a quote that said, we are not the soulless, lacking innovation people that literature has portrayed mm-hmm. us to be. And if you truly want to understand the beauty of somebody with autism, then read and listen and consume all the information at your fingertips and hear from them firsthand and and you'll understand what makes them tick and what makes them so valuable and so special and it was I just thought it was so powerful. You're and, spot on there and I, oh, I prefer yeah. reading or listening to things from an autistic person's perspective I think that's where you learn the most. I would say the autistic people that I've met in my life are the most empathetic mm. I've ever met. It's highly empathetic. It's that we are highly empathetic. Yeah, they feel so deeply and they consume the world in a much more delicate way, mm. I think, than sometimes neurotypical people do. They see the nuance. Mm. I think in that I certainly speaks to a lot of the young people I work with, you know, that actually, if anything, they they what we really uncover is that they're hypersensitive. And in mm. fact, because you find it difficult sometimes to kind of factor in this other information. It takes a bit more time. That worry about getting it wrong or saying the wrong thing or being so sensitive to the number of young people I've worked with who've said, my biggest fear is I'm going to upset somebody and I won't realize it and then I'll realize it Mm -hmm. later and I will be devastated. You know, that unbelievable compassion. Um, And it really, it it really just amazes me that it persists when I go in to do do a lot of workshops for schools, a lot of education around ADHD, autism. I'm also, what started my whole journey many years ago, I'm severely dyslexic. So I originally was, Mm. worked with dyslexia and all kind of build from there. So I've been doing presentations for schools for many years, but across all of these differences, the stereotypes that persist. Mm. I just find that quite astonishing because there's so much out there. And I think the more we read to neurotypical children as well, about this i think it's so important that those that aren't facing these challenges really understand it as well and that those of us with neurotypical children teach them as well about these conditions because ultimately you know employers are moving in the right direction Mm -hmm. they need to understand it your employees who are typical or diverse everyone needs to realize that this is the world we're in now and this is a massive movement epidemic whatever it is and there is so much 
to read, to share with them, to explain to them why mm. their workplace will be better by you know moving the goalposts or changing yeah. the way you, you do things. And I just can say that there are so many brilliant books for children of all ages. I think you know mm. you can start. You know, I was reading to my child about this little boy who, you know, dreamt of rainbows and mm. and not of football games, and and it's just trying to sort of get their heads around the fact that yeah. you know, there are these stereotypes and it's not necessarily what the modern world looks like. And there are so many great things to read and it's so comforting. One, your child is not broken is, is a really good one. Yeah, I've got a couple more I'll put in. Show well, notes. there's some really exciting things about this from my perspective as well and about actually children being the ones that understand this yes. most intuitively at all. You know, one personal anecdote is I told my nine-year-old that I was autistic recently and she just basically went, yeah, okay, fine. <laughs> uh, can I have a snack now? And like, it just like really wasn't. I thought it was going to be this big news, and it actually it wasn't. Just like it's fine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This, this second... Oh, you have extra. Do you have extra something? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and the second thing is, is that we've actually helped to fund some research, which is developing curriculums around how you can explain this to children, because we genuinely believe that in terms of changing attitudes to this, kids are the most flexible in terms of being able to take this on and understand this. So the earlier the better is, is really... Yeah, and we've, I mean, I, it's really interesting. Quite often kids get neglected in terms of explaining this. So we do a lot of, there's a lot of focus on teaching teachers about autism yeah, and all these professionals and parents and things like that. Yeah. You've got you know, explain it to the kids. And actually what we've shown is some really great research in California that shows that if you teach the kids actually that can lead to one of the best outcomes for so the, they're the autistic next generation children. Yeah. And, yeah. but they're their peers as well and, and, that's, and that's what yeah. you want to do you want to feel accepted and just going yeah. on to that I think that's, that's such good advice I was going to say for parents I think it's like anything right we all want to feel part of a community and if you're a parent you cannot feel quite excluded I think if you've got us as a child so helping parents to find that sense of peer support and that sense of mm. community I think has been really powerful for parents as a resource and I think that can't be underestimated at all you know speak to lots of parents who lose their job or can't keep their job because they're autistic they get very marginalized if you look at autistic children 28% of them are on free school meals compared to I think 18-19% of the general population I think that might be because parents of autistic children are being forced out of work so they're you've got to, we've it's got hereditary to, and therefore their parents are yeah yeah or they're being marginalized because they haven't to pick their kid up from school and they can't there's no flexibility right, 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 for work okay. so that's a huge issue mm -hmm. and then just in terms of resources there's loads lots of information of course available on our website uh, autistica <laughs> and the national autistic society website too building on on those things as well the other thing that i also find comes up a lot in my work is thinking about the sibling Touching on your point where you say that, that kids are better at understanding this, I've seen that firsthand. Oliver's cousins are absolutely wonderful with him. And we explained as soon as they're old enough, Oliver thinks a little bit differently and this is what you need to do to play with him successfully. Mm. And uh, for his confidence, you know, he might not realise it, but mm. just for being so accepted, yeah. that's really powerful for him too, isn't it? To yeah, still feel like he's got that network around him we made a new friend the other day who's um who's 12 too and he, he's neurotypical and his mother told me that he after the play date he went home and said well, why is oliver like he is like why is he mm. so different and she didn't know what to say to her son so she said to me well, what, what do i say 
And I said, look, just say, this is how Ollie thinks. Good this is what you like. Asking. Yeah, she, yes. which was I great. Have to she was say. Really confident. Yeah, I think that shows a, a real friend. And I said, look, just say that this is how Ollie thinks. This is what he likes. This is what he doesn't like. He has a thing called autism. Mm. And that was it. And now we've had another great play date. And yeah. <laughs> everything's, yeah. everything's cool. That's amazing. To siblings, mm. you know, it's hard. I've got two fairly neurotypical, or there are any of us, and one that's not and we're going to leave in about an hour to one you expect the other to be more organized you know it's it's definitely challenging i would say as a parent of three to feel like you're being fair although i'm quite quick to say life isn't fair and you're actually pretty lucky um what advice do you have because you know you might have to have slightly different rules or slightly different tolerances for me i sort of choose to Try and keep a harmonious home, pick my battles. Yes. And yes. sometimes there might be a slight allowance for one too much. And it, it, that can also be quite dangerous, I think. Sure. But, you know, it does require a bit of thought and like conscious parenting, I think. Mm-hmm. I think that's it, actually. I think that's really is acknowledgement. You know, and, and I think often what I've found is that because sometimes I will wind up seeing the sibling of the autistic person and work in, in a team mm. or do a piece of family work where I'm working with the parents. And, you know, there are a lot of different kind of permutations of things. But, you know, from the sibling experience to think about often siblings have an incredible understanding of their autistic sibling and an instinctive innate level that no one else has. Mm. So while they drive them crazy, they also are hugely protective. I read something in a book called You Don't Understand Me, which brilliant Tara reporter, shout out for her. <laughs> Definitely read it. Someone said, you know, your sibling might not lend you their phone charger, but they will give you a lung. So, you well, know, that's it, it. Will be that's well. exactly <laughs> it. That's exactly it. But I think that often, you know, the, the siblings I've worked with, it's been about just acknowledging that they occupy a place in the family that's challenging. You know, that because because they they know that their sibling often they understand that they need more. Mm. So sometimes they can wind up taking on responsibilities around the house or trying to kind of fill in the gaps. Mm. What you were saying before about, you know, parents needing to, let's say, leave work early because they have to pick up the child who's struggling Mm. at school, which then means the other child is feeling like they can't necessarily display their need. Mm. So I think it is, as you said, it's just, it's conscious, being conscious and remembering that there are other conversations to be had. There is something inherently, in a sense, that's unfair, but that actually, you know, as a family, you're all working together and that Mm. they're not being forgotten. They, Mm. They also have needs that you understand mm. will need I to think be some, met. some one-on-one time with, with all of them is, is quite important but to your point earlier Charlotte you know I think I'm definitely a better parent for having a neurodiverse child that, that I know that my daughters will be better people they might find it bloody frustrating <laughs> but I know they'll be better people in the long term I think from mm. growing up with a sibling who is created differently it's hard to know where to wind this up yes. but in the interest of time do you have any parting words of wisdom to share with people Mm. listening who might be the parent of or somebody with autism i mean there are just so many things to say because i think as has come up time and time again in this conversation everyone's situation is different Mm. every person is different every family is different every situation is different but i think for parents trust the voice in your head i think is a big one i just think of how many parents who knew from the time their kids were little 
and were getting kind of hitting the brick wall and didn't persist and later then have all the guilt and shame that comes with feeling like they haven't been timely enough. I mean, it's it's a difficult place to be, but I think follow your instincts mm. and that there are organizations out there who you can get a bit of a steer from, even mm. though it's they're thin on the ground, unfortunately. Mm. But I think there is ever more information. Mm. But don't be afraid to speak out. Don't be afraid to disagree with the school. You were talking about families where they, they didn't tell the child. Mm. And I'm just going to say from my experience, that is never helpful. I understand why it happens. But in the end, it's really important to know who you are and all the different parts of yourself. But then what you're also communicating to your child by not telling them is that you feel shame. Yeah. And that might not be your intention, but that's how it is going to be experienced by them. That's great advice. I would also say to parents, you know, talk. I think there are very few parents on the parenting journey who aren't going through something. And to that shame point, Mm. I think you'd be surprised how when you start to talk about what you're going through as a parent, I think you'll realize you're just not alone. It's very rare that you're not going through something. And the more we talk to each other and support each other and have these conversations and put this in the mainstream, on the mainstream table, the sooner we do that, the better. And we all benefit from that, whether you're an employer, a parent, somebody with autism. I just think talking about this is so important. And especially there are so as a parent. many companies where basically parents, you know, we become their charity of year and we get this huge cohort of parents who've basically never told the colleagues that they've got a child who's autistic at home. And then all of a sudden they have this forum to talk about it. And they sort of wow, I'm not alone. Yeah, yeah. There's all these other parents who Mm. care about this as well. Mm. It's incredible. It shows you how you've got to create that sort of opportunity for dialogue. Mm. And I think you know, as humans, we are inherently kind and want to help others and support others. Mm -hmm. I do think you know, when the shit hits the fan, um, when there's a pandemic or a world tragedy or whatever it is, we do all come together, and it's the same for it's the same in these Mm -hmm. situations. I think. Mm -hmm. Um, James, is there anything you'd add? I was thinking about the theme of some of the conversations we had. That sort of thing for me is all about acceptance, and I think you know, I mean that in a very broadly. I think society needs to accept that neurodiversity is part of our society, and we need to accept that there are ways in which we can make this better. And by doing that, if you're aligned, you know, talking about being a better parent, I think accepting this makes you a better line manager mm. at your work. It makes you a better person. It'll make you understand yourself. If we build these discussions in a little bit more of an effective way, accept that we're all not robots. That we're all different types of people, that we're not perfect and that we can't be perfect, which means if you're autistic, you have to accept that you can't be perfect and you're going to have flaws and you're going to make mistakes every single day. We might day. be CEO of Autistica and, you know, every <laughs> yeah, profession, but, you know. You might still miss your train this morning or be, late, <laughs> or, or be late to this podcast like I was. You know, so you're going to make mistakes and you've got to accept it and try and correct it. And if you're a parent of an autistic person, you, or you're, you're going to make mistakes as well. You're going to get things wrong and you're going to learn along the way. It doesn't make you a bad parent. It makes you a human being. And I think having that, I think, is really, really important. And then, obviously, as an autism researcher, charity i think we've got to really prioritize evidence and finding ways and doing things that really work for autistic people you know if you look at any other area of healthcare, you know we wouldn't accept the standards that we have for autistic people there's not enough evidence and research out there we need more of that and we need better services and, and better ways of supporting autistic people because this is not too hard and we shouldn't accept the status quo for autistic people because the inequalities that autistic people are unacceptable and completely avoidable I guess my final thought would be for parents of autistic 
children to speak up and to show up. I personally spent too much time not attending public events or not attending family occasions because I knew that it was going to be perhaps chaotic or perhaps it would result in an argument. Mm. So I shied away. That was the wrong thing to do upon reflection. And I think the more you tell people about what's going on in your family Mm -hmm. and the more you tell them what your child needs to be able to thrive in an environment, the more people are going to be accommodating. And I think my final thought to just generally people, leaders in business, leaders of organisations, anyone who's got influence, it's 2023. Like, it shouldn't just be about acceptance. It needs to be about inclusion. Mm -hmm. And for me, inclusion, every single level from the play parks that the kids go to, to the places where they eat, to where they're educated, to the books they read. We need to be working at a level of inclusivity that includes all neurodivergent people alongside neurotypical people as just people. We're a diverse breed. Mm. We're realising that, aren't we? There's a long way to go. Slowly. But how brilliant to have this conversation. Mm -hmm. Thank you all for showing up. Thank you for filling us in. The Dazzle and Fizz Club app, by the way, is brilliant. Congratulations. It's for children aged three to seven. And there are wonderful videos and not just to capture imaginations and help them focus their minds and brilliant. Yeah, we've got emotional intelligence stuff on there as well, which has all been written with autism and neurodivergence Mm -hmm. in mind. There's lots of repetition and we map it on sign throughout as well for kids with different special educational needs. So check Mm -hmm. it out. I'm sure people will. James, a huge thank you. I'm in awe of everything you do at Autistica and your wonderful founder. I mean, she is. She is amazing. She's a force. And Jessica, thank you so much. We'll put a link below if people want to get in touch with you thank you all so much that's it for today if you enjoyed that found that useful then please do leave a comment subscribe share with your friends who might find it useful too and we will be back soon thanks very much bye-bye hey everyone it's jen and jess from the beauty podcast fat mascara here to talk about sol de janeiro so many of the beauty experts we interview on our show say that the key to great skin is to treat every inch of your body with the same attention you give your face one of our favorite ways to do that is with sol de janeiro's beige flor elastic cream a rich body cream that's clinically proven to boost collagen and has been shown to improve skin crepiness on the chest in just two weeks plus it's scented with sol de janeiro's charosta 68 fragrance sol de janeiro is offering you 10 percent off your first order on sol de janeiro.com and free shipping with the code acas 10 that's s-o L-D-E-J-A-N-E-I-R-O soldejanero.com and use the code ACAS10 for 10% off.